you guys can grab a seat. Thank you, ladies, for leading us in worship, as always. How are we doing? Wow. A lot of people doing really good this morning, huh? Hmm. I guess everybody's good, had a good break. Everybody have a good Thanksgiving that wasn't back last week? Yeah, pretty good. Cool. So where do you guys think we're going to be uh, in the Word this morning? If you guys had a guess. Philippians? Philippians 3? First Peter? It sounds like this guy read my, my sermon notes this morning. So, um, Yeah, so believe it or not, I think for the first time since like week three, we're not going to be in Philippians. Uh, we're going to be in a, a series called Advent. Uh, how many of you guys grew up going to a church that celebrated Advent? Show of hands. Cool. Show of hands of how many people have no clue what Advent is. Couple hands, cool. No shame in that. Uh, I did not grow up in a church that celebrated Advent, so for me, this week was a lot like, okay, we're gonna learn what this actually is. So, does someone uh, want to be brave enough to to kind of volunteer and explain what Advent is? Yes, I know that's my job. That's why I'm. Oh, there's a hand there. What, what we got, Mark? No, you're good, right there. Close. Close. So. Close. That's a good guess. I got it from here, man. I appreciate you. That's it's good value and effort. I, I appreciate you. So Advent, I appreciate you being willing to do that, man. Uh, Advent is the coming. So Advent means coming. So that's why we've got a Christmas tree. That's why we got wreaths on the door. That's why all the ladies uh, actually decorated this Christmas tree last week. It was kind of sad. It, it didn't have any ornaments on it, so thanks. Uh, Sarah brought some ornaments for us, so we're a poor college church plant. We could get the tree, but no ornaments, so. Uh, but this week, we're going to be talking about Advent, so uh, if you guys want to be flipping over to Luke, uh, we're going to jump around a little bit this morning, so Tyler was right. We will be in First Peter eventually, uh, but Luke chapter 2. 1 through 14. Uh, as you guys are turning there, just to give you a little bit of history about Advent, uh, Advent is about the celebration, the coming of Christ. Uh, in evangelical circles, we really don't know when this tradition started, about when we were to look back to the uh, the first coming of Christ, the uh, coming of Christ was called the incarnation of God himself wrapping himself in human flesh and being born as a baby in Bethlehem. So uh, we're going to read this tale old time uh, that we read all the time during Christmas time in Luke. Uh, we're going to pick up Luke 2, 1 through 14. It says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town, in the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a verse there, sorry. <laughs> and Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And when they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. 
And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that you that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this is the first coming of Christ. This is the incarnation. Uh, how many of us are familiar with this story? Right? Pretty much all of us are familiar with it. But the word Advent, when it's talking about coming, originally when we were talking about the coming of Christ, why the church wanted to celebrate Advent was not for just the first coming. We didn't want to just call to mind once a year the first coming of Christ, but originally it was intended to call to mind also the second coming of Christ. So if you guys, uh, you can flip with me over. We're going to be talking about the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know if I've ever been in a Christmas church gathering where someone's going to read from Revelation. So uh, if this is a surprise to you, um, it was a surprise to me too. So, um, so if you want to flip over there with me, we'll have it on the screen as well. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. So what we just saw was the uh, humble Christ being born in his first coming in the incarnation. And what we're about to read is the glorious appearing, the second coming, the second advent of Christ. This one's maybe not as tame as the first. This is Revelation 19, picking up in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So what we see here is the conquering king. Very different from what we talk about a lot of times during Christmas, right? When we talk about Advent, we want to hearken back to the first coming of Christ, and we never pay attention to that second coming as well. This has been our culture for so long that when we talk about Advent, uh, what we are talking about is God, and we want to talk about these four things that traditionally we talk about during Advent. And we will talk about these four things starting this week with hope. But what we do in our culture is talk about hope, peace, joy, and love. That as the church, what we have done 
as kind of counteractive to what we've seen in our culture today. Let me explain what I'm trying to say. Uh, but what we want to only talk about is the gentle, the easy, the emotions of Christmas, of Advent, because what we see in our culture today is a culture during this time of year of consumerism. So this Christmas time where we are supposed to be celebrating the best gift that we ever received we oftentimes are fighting. We see these videos of people breaking into Walmarts and trampling over each other. And as the church, what we've started to do, and traditionally in Advent, what we've done is use these four words to kind of combat this culture we've seen. But we've kind of left it short. We haven't told the whole story. We just, kind of what we do as Christians and our Christian subcultures, when we see that's depravity of happening in the world, what we tend to do is reply with snarky attitudes and man-centered theology. Let me explain that, those two things. Uh, this week, as I was preparing for this, like I said at the beginning, Advent was completely new to me. So I purposely went out on the internet searching for Advent guides of people who have done it well, guys that I really respect. And what started happening in my heart started just causing me to be uh, at first broken and, and sad at seeing all of this poor demonstration of what the gospel actually is. And then it started to well up in me in anger of seeing that this snarky attitude that we have as Christians trying to combat this culture, um, it started to break my heart. Let me give you some examples. Like we as Christians, we want to talk about that, you know, keep the Christ in Christmas. Yeah, absolutely, that's right. Uh, but we also do things like we see at Starbucks. When Starbucks takes anything to do with Christmas off the mugs, we get frustrated. We get snarky when we go out into public and someone says, when uh, have a merry holiday when we respond back, no, merry Christmas. What we've started to do as the church is we've started to see the culture shift away from what Christianity is really about, but instead of actually taking it back to what it's about, we get snarky and we get cynical. But what we've seen, too, is what I saw in those articles all throughout this week is then it starts to become this man-centered theology. And let me explain what I'm saying here. So uh, I read a blog this week um, from a prominent pastor uh, that used Psalm 42.5. Psalm 42.5 says this. So as we talk about hope this morning, uh, I read an Advent. Uh, the guy used this verse. Why are you so downcast my soul and why are you in turmoil within me hope in God for I shall again praise him my salvation and he went on this tangent about talking about hope in God what God has done for you God has done such a great thing you need to pay him back as if we could ever pay God back that we take this hope and we start putting hope instead of Christ we put it in ourselves of what we can do then I read another article from probably a verse that all of you guys, if you've been in church for maybe even two minutes, know. Jeremiah 29, 11. I saw another pastor say this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And they used that hope in this advent of what we're talking about, of hope that God will one day bless you if you're good enough, if God is pleased with you, he will bless you. Can we see the disconnect? What we read in Scripture about the first advent, the hope of the world was in a person, Christ. And what we saw in Revelation at the second advent is the hope is in a person, Christ. 
that all of these articles about this man-centered theology, they're absolutely right that Christ is the reason for the season, but they stop short of saying that Christ is our only hope. So what we are trying to do in this series of Advent is ultimately reclaim those four weeks of hope, joy, peace, and love. And bringing back to the original meaning of each one of those weeks. So what we're going to do with hope this week is we're going to turn to God's word and answer one question this morning. We'll have this question here for you. It says, how does the advent, now remember advent means the coming, both the incarnation and his second coming. How does the advent of Jesus give me hope for today? Hope for today. So uh, theologians and a lot of guys will talk about what we are currently in from the moment that Christ left to the moment he comes again is this season called the already but not yet. Already but not yet. Christ has already came and ushered in his kingdom and his rule, but he has not yet fully proclamated it. So what do we do in the middle of this time? What do we do in this season with this hope that we're supposed to have. So we're going to look to 1 Peter this morning to answer that question. So uh, if you want to find your way to 1 Peter, I told you we'll be flipping a little bit here, but this is going to be our primary verse this morning. 1 Peter 1, 3. The reason we want to look to Peter for this answer this morning, not only because it's Christ inspiring these words, but because Peter is a man who walked with Christ. If our hope should truly be in Christ and nothing else, not these gifts, not this season, not our relationships around us, if our truly our only hope in this season is Christ, uh, I could not think of a better man than to look at than Peter who spent his entire life with Jesus. So we're going to read 1 Peter 1, 3 together. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Father, as we come as your church this morning in a season that's so surrounded uh, about us, about what we can do to love people better, well, we've gotten it all backwards about this season is truly about you being the hope of the world, not only in the past, in the present, but today. So will we center our hearts around you? Would you help us? Father, would you give me the words to say uh, that we would rightly praise you, that you would divorce us from our hope in ourselves and wed us to hope in you alone? It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we are going through 1 Peter, uh, there's going to be three primary things that we see to answer that question. As we're going to answer that question, how does the advent of Jesus provide hope for today? Uh, three primary things that we're going to see. Uh, we're going to pick up there in the first half of 1 Peter. So uh, Paul, uh, Peter says this in verse 3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that we see here, our first hope, if you're taking notes this morning of why Christ is our hope for today, is this, is that he is the Christ. He is the Christ. 
Not only was he the Christ at his coming and his birth, and not only will he be that Christ on the white horse at his second coming, but he is the Christ today. So imagine that this is Peter walking alongside Jesus, that he gets to see the fullness of Christ come, that he gets to see all of his ministry. What Peter is saying here, he is actually worshiping God. If you have the same translation that I do in the ESV, there's an exclamation mark at the end of that. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he gets to see, like we've talked talked about in our Philippian series, if you've been here with us, those words in the name of Jesus, Lord means owner, that he is the conquering king, that he is now because he came and he died and he rose again, that Peter is saying that he is indeed the Lord, but he is also Christ. He is the anointed one set aside that the, all the prophets, that all of scripture was prophesying about. That's why the angels that we read in Luke 2 were singing out that this is the Christ. I think the best way to understand this is when we see something in its fuller picture, it causes our hearts to worship. I know for me, uh, I, when I was, God, I was probably about 15, 16 or so, I'd seen pictures of the Grand Canyon. I'd seen so many pictures, or I'd seen videos, or I'd seen people who'd gone there. My parents and I went out, um, and we were able to actually go and drive to the Grand Canyon, but when we were driving in, it was at night, and there was a, a dimly, dimly lit, like, kind of hue. I could kind of make out what seems like, okay, there's the Grand Canyon. I have a picture of it. I've seen pictures of it. I know how great and majestic this is supposed to be, and we stopped at a little bed and breakfast that we had no clue where we were in the middle of the night. Uh, we checked in, like, two in the morning. We wake up the next morning at sunrise, and we go out on the balcony, and we get to see the vastness and the beauty and the grandeur and the color of this magnificent creation of the Lord, and it caused worship in my heart and my soul that I got to see, not in part, but in full, and I got to see the majesty of Christ. And in the same way, that is what Peter is doing here, that he would been grown up as a young Jewish boy, been told at one day that a coming of a Messiah would come, that he would have been studying these Jewish texts, that for 400 years there had been silence from the moment that the last prophet spoke until the coming of Christ. There was 400 years of silence. But then Peter got to see Christ face to face, and it caused him to worship what he was calling to mind there that we have record of. Uh, Genesis 3.15 says this. This is the first account of the coming of Christ. The moment that sin entered into the picture that we as the human race fell short, the first prophecy of Christ was made. And this is God speaking to the serpent here. He's saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel that this is talking about the coming of Christ, that the enemy would, yes, in fact, kill Christ, but that Christ defeated the enemy and defeated sin and defeated death on the cross. Peter would have been calling this to mind, knowing this is the first prophecy of the Messiah. John says it this way when it's talking about the coming of Christ. John 1.14 says this, and the word, and the reason it's capitalized there is this is talking about Jesus. This is talking about Christ. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
we see at the beginning of the Old Testament, in the beginning of the New Testament, that everything in Scripture is about Christ, that everything we read is talking about the first coming of Christ or is talking about the second coming of Christ. Uh, there's a pastor that I really respect. He's, in fact, the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Convention now. Um, the reason why we believe all 66 books of these are important to us is because all of it is about Jesus, every single bit of it. If we are looking to have hope, the only hope we have is in Christ. So all of Scripture has got to be about Christ. So this is going to be a longer list, but we're going to go through this, and I can send it to you afterward for it to build hope in you. And this is who Christ is in all of the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament. He says this, in Genesis, he's, he's saying, I was, this is as if Jesus was talking. In Genesis, I was the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, I was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorpost of your heart so that you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, I was the temple, the holy place where you met God. In Numbers, I was your ever-present guide, your pillar of cloud by day and your pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, I was the prophet coming who was greater than Moses. In Joshua, I was the conquering warrior leading you to the promised land. In Judges, I was the broken savior rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, I was your kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, I was the pure-hearted shepherd king who rushed out to face your giants all alone. In First and Second Kings, I was the righteous ruler. In First and Second Chronicles, I was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, I was your advocate, risking my life to restore you to royalty. In Job, I was your living redeemer. In the Psalms, I was the one who hears your cries. In Proverbs, I am wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, I am the meaning that lets you escape the madness. In the Song of Solomon, I am your lover and your bride. In Isaiah, I was the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. In Jeremiah, I am the spirit that writes God's law on your heart. In Lamentations, I was the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, I was the river of life, bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, I was the ever-faithful husband, pursuing my unfaithful bride. In Joel, I was the restorer of all the locusts have eaten. In Amos, I was your burden bearer. In Obadiah, the judge of all the earth. In Jonah, the prophet cast out into the storm so that you could be brought in. In Micah, the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, your reason to rejoice even when our fields are empty. In Zephaniah, I am the great reformer. In Haggai, the cleansing foundation. In Zechariah, the pure son whom every eye on earth will one day behold. And in Malachi, I am the son of righteousness rising with healing in my wings. This is who Christ is. All of Scripture all of the creation, all of the world, everything is created by him and for him and through him all things hold together. So in this Advent season, when we're talking about hope, we would start wrongly if we started with anywhere else besides saying that he is the Christ, he is the hope of the world, that everything that we will ever need will be through him. Would we, like Peter, cry out and worship and scream and exult that my sins 
have been forgiven, that you are my only true hope. The only thing I need in this season is not more comfort, is not more gifts, is not more money, is not more friendships, is nothing besides you, Jesus. That you are my true hope. When all things seem hopeless, that you are there at the pit of my soul, on the dark day of my soul, that you are indeed there, underneath it all, upholding me. That's what we cry out when we cry out that Christ is our hope. And as your pastor, I refuse, I refuse to point your hope to anything else. I refuse to point your hope to saying that you can be good enough, that you can do good enough things, that this season is really about you and your happiness. And if you are good enough, that some celestial person in the sky will give you the things that you deserve. That is not what the season is about. It has always been about his first coming and his second coming and how we live in the middle in this already but not yet is only standing firm like we just sang that our hope is our anchor in the veil. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That is what it means to be a Christ follower, that he is our true only hope. So today, if you are feeling hopeless, take heart. You're not alone. That Christ is so good and so glorious and so sovereign, he leads you into difficult, hurting, harmful places where you are forced to be dependent on him. God absolutely will give you more than you can handle because you're not supposed to handle it. He is your only hope. Christ is our hope. But it doesn't stop there that Peter worships the Lord there for being his hope. But how else does the advent of Jesus Christ give us hope for today? We get to see as Peter continues, he says, according to his great mercy. We're back in 1 Peter. The second part of verse 3 says, according to his great mercy. We have hope. Imagine this man, Peter. If you know the story of Peter, you know that he says, God, if all turn against you, I won't. I'll be there. And we get to see that he denies Christ three times before the rooster crows. If someone knows the mercy of the Lord, it's got to be this man. Because what we get to see afterward is that when Christ is crucified and he rises again, that Peter was hopeless. I've heard a lot of people use that phrase already, but not yet. Don't return to your nets just yet. They were fishermen. When Christ was crucified, they didn't know what to do. This is not how they expected to go down. Peter didn't know what to do. He just went back to what he was doing before, his fishing. But as he was in the middle of fishing, hopeless, thinking that this man that I thought was the Messiah, the prophesied one, that all of Scripture told me about was crucified, he's dead, what do I do? That Christ appeared on the beach, and Peter, it's so 
I can't imagine. I would do the same thing. Peter's not the smart guy. I would too. Instead of jumping into the water and taking off more clothes so that way you're not drenched, he puts on his robe then jumps in the water. He's so excited he doesn't know what to do because he has hope again. And he runs to the beach. And we get to see for all three times that Peter denied him, that Christ restores him three times and makes him breakfast. He says, Peter, do you love me? Of course I do, Jesus. Then tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Of course I do. Then tend my flock. Peter, do you love me? Of course I do, Jesus. Every time he fell short. This man knows the mercy of the Lord. We get to see this mercy of Jesus all throughout Scripture. In Luke, there's a parable that Jesus tells. Luke 18, 9 through 13. And it's my favorite parable that Jesus tells because it demonstrates the mercy of the Lord. It says this, He also told this parable to some, he meaning Jesus, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner. And we get to see, as the parable were to continue, that Jesus says that the one that was justified was the tax collector, the one that cried out for mercy, the one that knew that he needed mercy. So why can we have hope today in the middle of this Advent? Is because Christ, he is full of mercy. He is full of mercy. We see this in the Old Testament, that the mercy that we need can only come from the Father. And sometimes it's hard for us to understand that in this season that we actually need mercy because we are like that Pharisee. We oftentimes compare ourselves to other people and say, I'm not like this person. Thank you, God, that I'm not like this person. We even so full of sin and depravity, act as if though we were praising God by slandering our brother and sister and saying that I'm not like them. This is not the heart that Christ has for us. In fact, we see this from David when he fell short. This is a prayer of David in Psalm 51. And I'll read this out for you guys. Uh, We'll have it on the screen for you as well. It's pretty long. Um, Intentionally wanted to do that for us this morning. Instead of just jumping all over scripture to prove to you that we in this room are in fact in need of mercy. It's much better just to show you from one man who's called a man after God's own heart, if he needs mercy, how much more do we? And this is what David says in Psalm 51, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only ever I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We see that we need mercy because we were brought forth in iniquity, all of us in this room. This is not the conversation you probably thought we'd be having coming in on the Advent talking about Christ, but I'm here to tell you if Christ is our only hope, there's a reason that he's our only hope is because we were hopeless before him, that we needed him to blot out our transgressions, that we in this room have got to beg God to cleanse us and give us a clean heart. We can't do it ourselves. And if we in this Christmas season, this Advent, are asking for anything from God, that is what we should be begging him to give us the ability to ask to cleanse us, to open our heart to the goodness and the mercy that he so willingly provides. Would we cry out like the tax collector, have mercy on me, God? Would we stop acting like we have it all together? Would we stop acting like we're not as sinful as we really are? Would we stop acting like the word sin and wrath is a cuss word when it's clearly all over Scripture? Would we stop acting like we don't need a Savior? That's what we need. We need Christ. We are hopeless without him. We had no hope, but he is rich in mercy when we have been given the heart and ask God, I need you. So in this season, if you are feeling like God is withholding from you something good, how dare us, how dare I accuse the God of the universe who did not withhold his own son of withholding from us? He gave his only son. What else do we need? Why do we need more things that are just going to disappear, that we're going to lose and put in a junk drawer? Why do we need more relationships of people to approve on us when we have already been approved in Christ? Beloved, sing from the mountaintops, you have found love in the beloved. This is the season of what we're talking about. And I refuse as your pastor to let these three, four weeks go by and point you back to the manger and refuse to point you to the coming glory and refuse to allow you to hope in Christ today. 
That hope was not just for yesterday. That hope is not just for someday when he makes us perfect. But today we have mercy. If you are in sin in this room this morning, pray, Father, give me mercy. Open my heart to see the riches of your glory. And then when he has, if Christian, in this room, you are divorced from your sin. He has cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. It is no more. You are a new creation. You have hope. Stand firm. That is your only anchor. The only thing you need to grasp at this season is the foot of the cross. That's where you were justified. And when he rose from that grave, he brought us with him that one day we will be completely in his presence. And hope will not be something we just eagerly expect and and kind of want, but it will be fulfilled. As we touch the holes in his hands and the hole in his sight, and we see him face to face, our hope will not just be a dream, but a reality. That is what we need this season, why Christ is our hope, because he is rich in the mercy that we all so desperately need. But Peter doesn't even stop there. We go back to 1 Peter. We get to see as Peter concludes this, this man who walked with Christ. He says this, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That he has caused us, this incarnation of Christ's coming. There's a great quote, um, there's an Advent book that my wife and I are reading through, uh, Paul David Tripp. And uh, I want to quote that here for us. Um, He says this about this gift of Christ, that when he said he has caused us to be born again, this is what he has done. He would do in grace what the law can never do. He would do in grace what we can never do for ourselves. He would do what philosophers can never conceive, what leaders can never strategize, and what poets can never imagine. He would offer the only thing that would ever address the need and solve the problem. He himself would become the greatest, most costly, most transformational gift ever. That is what Christ has done for us when he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Because you see that the meaning of Advent, the first coming, the incarnation, was not the end. And Jonathan said this on Thursday night, that our hope did not just end when Christ came and died on a cross, but if that was it, then we would be pitied among all men because we have no hope. But the reason for the incarnation was always the crucifixion and was always his resurrection. So that way we could be raised with him, that he is living now, that we don't have to put our hope in something that is fleeting and passing away. Maybe the best way that we can understand this is if we think of a Christmas tree. Not this guy because he's fake, but a real Christmas tree. A real Christmas tree. I look at it every year. Um, When my wife and I got married, uh, we went to Home Depot to get a Christmas tree for our first year uh, of being married. And so she started walking into Home Depot. I'm like, what are you doing? Christmas trees are outside. She'd always had a fake Christmas tree, never had a real Christmas tree. And she was just like literally a kid at Christmas. That's like not an overstatement. But if we think about a real Christmas tree, she loves Christmas trees. 
Like, in fact, if you're in our missional community, you will see that Christmas tree probably for the next four months. Like, it will, it will stay there. She cried the first year I had to go and throw it in the dump. She said I left it there, and I said it went with all the other Christmas trees and played in a big farm somewhere. Uh, but the point is, as Christ is that living hope, that Christmas tree is much joy, much hope and love of this season that it brings to my wife, where she feels like our house is happy because we have it. Sadly, it will die. Those, those needles will fall off the tree. It will wilt. But if we, as Christ followers in this room, place our hope in a living hope, we, it will never die. So what are we placing our hope in this season that ultimately can't stand up under the burden of our hope? What are we placing our hope in that will eventually die? Is it friendships? Is it a job? Is it a relationship? Is it financial stability? Is it parenting? Is it retirement? What is it that you are placing your hope in this season that ultimately will fall short and that you, this morning, Christ is asking you to place that hope in him? I pray that it's not a Christmas tree that is fleeting and passing away. We get to see all throughout Scripture when Peter is talking that we, are, we have Christ born again to a living hope, that we see this in throughout Scripture um, in Revelation 1, 17 through 18, that Christ is in fact living. It's a truth. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is John talking. Um, but he, that should be capitalized, he, Christ, laid his hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Titus 2.13 would say it this way about our living Savior, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ that our hope is in fact alive. That the reason why we can have hope in the middle of this Advent season, if you're taking notes, this third and final thing, why we can have hope is because he is our living hope. That we don't hope for anything but Christ this morning. As we are talking about Advent, reclaiming these words, these four words that we so often talk about year in, year out sometimes, that Christ is our only hope. Matt Chandler is a pastor in Texas, uh, and a guy I really respect has a quote. He says this when it talks about the resurrection of Christ and how he is our living hope. He says this, when we look at Jesus raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, the one who proclaims he will come again, what we're seeing is that fixed reality that if Jesus was raised from the dead, everything God has promised to us will in fact occur. We have an objective hope that doesn't rest upon our own ability to manufacture it. That we don't have to create false idols of things that will never stand up under the weight of our hope because we have been given a living hope. So just in this room this morning, in your own life in this season, I plead with you, ask the Lord, what is it that is sitting on his throne in your heart? What is it that you are putting your hope in 
like we talked about at the beginning, this snarky Christian attitude that we have is just this surface level. When we feel like we're talking about God, we feel like we're talking about the gospel and the good news of Christ. I would ask you, is, is that what you're putting your hope in, this religiosity that you come in here on a Sunday, that you're involved in 15 different campus ministries, that you read your Bible, that you pray all good things, but none of that has the power to save. That salvation is found in Christ and proclaiming him as your Lord only. It is the only thing that can stand up on the weight of the great sin that we have. God's not saying that he came incarnate to provide hope and then you have to clean yourself up afterwards. That is not hope. I don't know about you, but I know how broken and flawed and sinful I am. And studying these passages this week has just renewed in me that need for hope because I can't find it in myself. It was never intended to. That our hope is in Christ alone. So as we think about this Christmas season, as we ponder these words that the Lord has spoken over us this morning, I pray and ask that you don't get caught up in this man-centered theology. When people tell you that you can hope in God if you're good enough, that you can hope in God if you're strong enough, if you read your Bible enough, that you can then be good enough for God to approve in you, or maybe even more detrimental, as if though God's only purpose was to provide you hope. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ. The reason he came, the reason he died, the reason he resurrected, the reason that he is being our living hope right now, the reason he is seated on his throne with myriads of angels saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God Almighty who was and is to come is because he is first and foremost for his glory. That we get to play a part in that. When we realize that God has sent himself to glorify himself, that we get to see the beauty of God. The most beautiful thing we could ever behold is not a Grand Canyon, it's Christ. And this, this beautiful truth, I pray the Holy Spirit opens your heart to see and understand that if anything in your heart this morning is being treasured more than Christ in this season as we exchange gifts and we get to have presence under the tree and we get to spend time with family, I pray that none of that or the hurting of maybe broken relationships and families that you're hoping that this season of hope will be renewed. I pray that it falls short, it pales in comparison to you treasuring Christ. If I only have you guys as college students for one year, two years, three years, and you're sent out, I pray that you can leave here knowing that. I pray if you are here with us for a long period of time, if you've been a Christ follower for a long period of time, and you've known this truth, that you would stand firm in it. Because if you are feeling defeated and hopeless this morning, no amount of shopping, no amount of eggnog, no amount of anything is ever going to satisfy. So if we were to do this, if we were actually to hope in Christ this season, 
everything changes. Our contentment level this season, we're not asking for more, more, more. We're praising God saying, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your rich mercy. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for dying for me. Lord, what I want more of is you. Our assurance levels of our salvation is sure because we are putting it not in ourselves, but in the finished work of the cross. That is where our hope is. So I pray that you would stand firm in that this morning. This is the good news of the gospel, that Christ came and died for us. He took on our sin and the wrath of God on the cross. This is the good news. I pray that you would hope in that alone this Christmas season. So if this is the first time you have heard the Christmas message or the gospel delivered this way, I pray that you would take this moment to respond. If God has given you the grace to open your heart to the good news that you would not let this moment go by, but that as we, as believers in this room, take communion, that you would search someone out. That I, it is our prayer as we sit right here in staff meeting every Tuesday night and before we start, we pray for the Lord to save and it is his work. So as we stand here, if the Lord has indeed opened your heart this morning, use this moment to respond. See me or Bailey at either one of the communion tables in the back. We'd love to tell you why the hope of Christ is not just for today, but what you do every single day for the rest of your life after that. If you're a Christ follower in this room this morning, the charge is the same to respond, to gladly partake in communion as we remember that Christ came and died. And that one day that this hope would not just be symbolic of blood and the juice and a broken body and the bread, but it will be manifest. We will see our Savior face to face, our living hope. So as Christ said, as you take of this bread, remember this is my body that was broken for you. As you take of the juice, remember this is my blood poured out for you. But if you are not yet in Christ, please refrain as those symbols don't mean anything to you just yet. And if you are a believer, scripture is clear in 1 Corinthians that if you have sin in your heart against another brother and sister, or if you have sin in your heart that you're hoping for anything else besides Christ, that you would refrain from taking that until you reconcile with one another or reconcile with Christ. So communion is going to be open. Our worship team will come up as we continue to worship God for his great hope. So will you guys pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much that you are indeed our great hope. Thank you that we don't have to hope in anything else in this season. That God, if we are in this room this morning and we are indeed your sons and daughters, we have a living hope that we trust in you and we will be satisfied. But God, if in this room this morning there is longing in our hearts and brokenness and feeling empty and feeling hopeless, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would impress and open hearts to the good news of your gospel. So God, as we go out in this season, we would go out with your strength, your encouragement, and that we would be a testimony to the rest of Milledgeville about how we are content and we have the greatest hope even in light of the most difficult circumstances because you are alive.
It's in your name we pray. Amen.